For both Democrats and Republicans, so-called Bidenomics is a hot topic of discussion. But beyond efforts to score cheap electoral points with catchy slogans, what is Biden's real record on the economy? What has Bidenomics meant for the working class? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We're very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarik, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. So, Professor Wolf, Bidenomics in the news constantly. The Republican, you know, political strategists and operatives are hoping that this will be a winning narrative for them in the election, associating Joe Biden with a looming recession or high inflation. The Democrats are now saying, well, maybe we can turn this around and, and make Bidenomics into a positive thing in people's minds that's associated with economic resiliency or investment in infrastructure. So there's this sort of political theater going on, but behind all of that or beyond all of that, I mean, what is Biden's real record on the economy? And I mean, how should workers understand the last two and a half years of the Biden administration in terms of its economic policies? Okay, it's a good question. And the point you made about political theater is a good starting point. Most of it is theater, Republican theater, Democratic theater. And Biden is not very different from Obama, who wasn't very different from Clinton. And Trump, despite all of his theatrics, wasn't all that different from Bush one or Bush two. Here's the basic reality, if the theater can be set aside for a moment. The American economy, U.S. capitalism, is being shaped now by a set of forces over which neither the Republican nor the Democratic Party exercises dominant control. They like to pretend they do by blaming the other for whatever is bad and grabbing credit for whatever is good. And since the economic system always has a mixture of good things and bad things going on, an honest appraisal looks at both of them and then makes an overall assessment based on the strengths and weaknesses of the pluses and minuses. But we don't function like that in our society. We either don't have honest assessments 
or they are buried by an avalanche of what is really advertising. And whoever is out of power, in this case the Republicans, blame the Democrats for everything bad they can find. And if they can't find enough, they make it up. And the Democrats do exactly the same thing the other way. If they're the president, which they are now, they go and hunt for whatever is good, hype that, and if that isn't enough, they make it up as well. The irony is, with all of the blaming and describing and looking at the policies of the two sides, in the end, discussing that misses the big picture of what is shaping the economy. And if you allow me, let me say briefly what that is. The United States is coming down from a period of economic dominance in the world, roughly the last 75 years since the end of World War II. That war destroyed every other economic system that might have competed with the United States. The Germans, the Japanese, maybe a couple of others, but really only the Germans and the Japanese, whose competitive opportunities were wiped out because both of them lost the world war. And that left the United States king of the hill. The old empires of Britain and France and Belgium and so on collapsed, and the place of the old colonial capitalist countries in Europe was replaced by that of the United States. The British pound was no longer the currency of the world as it had been in the 19th and 20th, first half of the 20th century, and it was replaced, as we all know, by the almighty dollar. All of that is fading away now. For the first time in 75 years, the United States has a real serious economic competitor, the People's Republic of China. And that competitor is growing two to three times faster than the United States right now, and it has been doing that for 30 years. They figured out how to build an economy. They've taken one of the poorest countries on earth and made it the competitor of the United States, even up to the highest levels of technology. If you want to understand where the American economy is, you've got to do two things that neither the Republicans nor the Democrats do. Number one, acknowledge the global change in the world economy. The United States is no longer the top dog with no competitors. And the second thing you have to recognize is that these new global conditions, the decline of the dollar, the rise of the BRICS alliance, all of that is a much more profound shaper of our wages, our jobs, and our economic future than what the Republicans and the Democrats blame each other for in that boring political theater. Having said that, I don't want to be accused of pretending that there are no differences between them. There are, and they're important. Republicans have a theater in which they tell the, uh, the people of the United States, 
that you've got to make profits higher if you're going to do better, and so you have to do everything the profit-making companies want. The Democrats say no, because the profit-making companies are looking out for themselves and not for the overall economic well-being. So the Democrats don't do things as gross as the Republicans. For example, the only thing Mr. Trump did of economic importance was the tax cut of 2017. December of that year. That helped corporations and the rich, which is what Republicans always do, and that was supposed to get us a wonderful new boom. It didn't. It usually doesn't. It's a gift to those who fund the Republican Party, and that's pretty much the end of it. The Democrats didn't do that. What did the Democrats do? They decided to spend in a big way on the pandemic, on infrastructure, on one or two other things. And that's, of course, better than giving tax cuts to the already richest parts of the country. But let's make no mistake. When you have big spending plans like the Democrats do, and the Democrats this year are spending like we were in a Great Depression, we are spending way above what the government raises in taxes. We will have a deficit over a trillion dollars again. And most of that money goes from Washington to the biggest corporations in America. They're the ones that do infrastructure, like roads, highways, harbors, electrification, whatever else. They're the biggest beneficiaries of the money spent during the pandemic etc., etc. So it's the, in the end, the rich and the corporations who get most of the money. But yes, it's not as gross. And there are overflow effects for the mass of people more from the Democrats than the Republicans. But let me end by saying again, it's mostly theater. Let me remind you, Mr. Trump identified China as the great enemy. He waged a trade war against China, which he assured us he would win. He waged a tariff war, taxing goods coming in from China, which he said would lead to the kinds of changes we would want in China. It didn't do anything. The Chinese continued on the path that has worked so well for them, which should surprise nobody. Mr. Biden, who was expected not to repeat what Trump had failed to accomplish, did surprise us by continuing most of what Trump had done, and he has been just as unsuccessful. You've got to deal with China. You've got to work out some way to live together if you're not going to blow each other up and take all of us with them, or simply destroy the whole planet by neglecting the climate problems and all the rest in favor of more fake political theater. Bidenomics is make-believe. It's a brand invested by a Madison Avenue advertising mentality, trying to 
you know, make something out of what is really very standard democratic politics, very much money flowing into the hands of the biggest American corporations. Nothing has been done about the fundamental inequality in the United States of rich and poor, which got worse under Trump and continues to worsen under Biden, etc., etc. You can see the fundamental similarity of the two parties by taking a look at the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage. It was last raised to the incredibly low $7.25 an hour. It was last raised to that height in 2009. Since that time, neither Republican presidents nor Democratic presidents, neither Republican-dominated Congress or Democrat has been able to do anything. The Democrats talk about it, how grotesque it is, but they can't manage to do much. Bidenomics is as big a failure for the poorest workers amongst us as you could imagine, and nothing shows it more than the grotesque decision of the two parties to leave the federal minimum wage at $7 and a quarter since 2009. And in case you're wondering, yeah, prices rose over 20% in this country since 2009. But what we give the lowest paid workers per hour didn't adjust upwards because neither Republicans nor Democrats could see their way clear to make it happen. Yeah, I mean, such an important point to keep in mind there, that fundamental loyalty, the the fundamental similarity in the economic policies, philosophies of the two major corporate parties in the United States. I wanted to ask you, too, about how Biden's economic policies have evolved. When Biden was first elected, or a few months after Biden took office in uh, April of 2021, he gave a major address to Congress and laid out, you know, a pretty ambitious domestic reform agenda. It would include things like universal pre-K, you know, paid family leave, raising the minimum wage, passing the Equality Act, passing the PRO Act, which would make it easier to, much, much easier, historically easier to form a union. So, you know, taken together, it, it actually, you know, it was a pretty impressive package of reforms. And it was bizarre to see somebody like Joe Biden, who's been a loyal servant of corporations and the rich his whole career, you know, say these things. But when you thought about it, it wasn't, it wasn't really that weird because it's a common thing throughout history where even the most you know, conservative, pro-capitalist, pro-corporate politicians realize that under certain extraordinary historical events, it's necessary to offer concessions. This extraordinary historical event in this case being COVID and all of the economic dislocation that came with the pandemic. And of course, the mass protest movements that had, you know, come up preceding the pandemic, during it and afterwards. But then what actually happened is that that agenda essentially did not come to fruition. And what we ended up seeing instead was the, the expiration a lot of, of a lot of these pandemic era social programs that you, you had mentioned, you know, the eviction moratorium, for instance, you know, the freeze on student loan debt repayment. That fell by the wayside. And all of these pandemic programs that had offered relief to working people were no more. So when you compare what Biden was initially promising 
to what he actually delivered. I mean, there's even within that relatively narrow range, there's a huge chasm. Absolutely. But, you know, this really is standard Democratic Party playbook. You promise a lot, particularly when you're running for office, particularly when, as you say, concessions seem to be the order of the day. The Democrats like to step up and look as though they really care about the important issues. And one of the reasons it's important to remember is that the one president from the Democratic Party who really did a lot of that was Franklin Roosevelt during the 1930s. He, of course, under pressure from workers below, unions, socialist and communist parties that were strong in the United States at that time, they got the president to create the social security system, which we never had before. The unemployment compensation system of of the United States, which we never had before. The first minimum wage ever passed in the United States, which we had never had before. And a program of hiring millions of workers to work directly for the government so they had a decent income and a secure job, which we have never had before. So why is he the model? Because he did those things? No. He's the model because having done those things, no other president ever dared to do. No other president before and no other president since. Mr. Roosevelt was reelected to the presidency three times in a row. He was the most popular president the United States ever had, bar none. And he was the most daring in taxing the rich to provide mass good programs for the mass of the people. So the Democrat Party wants, of course, to win the votes. They want to be as popular as Roosevelt once made the Democratic Party. But they don't want to pay the price. They don't want to do what Roosevelt did tax the rich. They didn't even have the courage to undo in a serious way the absurd tax cut that Trump gave corporations and the rich in 2017, which, by the way, he had promised he would seriously reverse. He never did. What the Democratic Party is stuck in, they want the popularity of a Roosevelt, but without a mass base to support them, they are afraid to offend their donors, the same rich corporations that fund the Republican Party. Roosevelt could do it because the Depression threatened the whole system. We don't have a threat yet to the whole system from inside, and so we don't get from the Democrats much more than talk. Secretary of the Treasury Yellen gives speech after speech where she worries out loud about the gross inequality here in the United States. She sees it like everybody who pays attention does. She worries about it like a half-wit ought to. But does she do anything about it? No. That's why she keeps giving speeches, because it doesn't change, not with the Republicans and not with the Democrats. And that inequality 
is a much more profound threat to the future of American capitalism than 90% of what the Biden administration does attend to. And let's not forget, when the railroad workers here in America, early on in the rising militancy of the labor movement, wanted to go on strike, Mr. Biden, the friend of labor, as he brands himself, blocked them from doing it. And nor has he helped much on the other strikes in this country. So it's politics as usual in a society, America, which can't afford politics as usual. It can't afford politicians that are busy blaming themselves as if they were in control, playing these childish games. I'll find the good things in the economy and claim credit, and I'll find the bad things and blame you. Each one plays this childish game, and we're all required to watch and pretend that this is serious. It isn't. The United States spends less than China on higher education now. The Chinese are graduating many more engineers than the United States. And I mean more even taking into account the larger population. Their high tech is as good as the American high tech, in some cases better. They are a real competitor. The empire that was is passing down. A new one built around China, its allies, and its notion of economic development, that's the real question of how the world is going to evolve and the position of the United States in it. But you won't hear anything half-baked intelligent about it. If we hear about the Chinese, it will be to demonize how bad they are. That's childish. Solves nothing. Teaches nobody anything. Why not face the reality that right now, just to give you one dimension of this, the biggest ally the Chinese have in their movement forward is American capitalism. The biggest American corporations are the ones that trade the most with China. The biggest American corporations are the ones who've invested hundreds of billions of dollars in China. They don't want the United States and China to be at each other. That's not good for business. And that's what they're in there for, to make a buck, to make a profit. They want a deal to be worked out. While the politicians, still living in the fog of the Cold War, want to say nasties about the political opposition in China. It's pathetic to watch, and it's a sign of a system unable to rise to the historical moment that it faces and that threaten it. And that's not a good sign for where things are going. Professor Wolf, I just want to ask you one more question. Um, you know, a, a huge part of Biden's rhetoric when it comes to the economy is the middle class, right? You know, every other word out of Biden's mouth when he's talking about the economy or if he's speaking to a, a group of union members is about the middle class, how he wants to grow the economy, quote unquote, from the middle out. But really this whole theme, which is you know pervasive in U.S. politics of the middle class, is, is based on, on mythology. 
Talk about this concept of the middle class, if you will, the role that it plays in U.S. politics and what, what the truth of the situation is. Yeah, the middle class was an idea developed in the heyday of American capitalism, basically most of the 20th century. It was a time when American capitalism was growing and growing fast. The pie, the economic pie, was expanding. And you could go to the mass of the workers, well, to be more honest, the mass of the white workers, and to be more honest, the the world of the white male worker, and give them a fat salary, more than had been given to workers before, more than had been given to workers in other countries. That's, by the way, no longer true, even though most Americans hold on to the idea that it is. That's why Mr. Trump talks about making America great again. He's telling the middle class, we're going to bring you back to where things were after the Great Depression, when we really grew in the second half of the 20th century. But we grew then because we had no competitor. We have one now. We grew then because we dominated the world economy. We don't anymore. We grew then because the dollar was the only currency the world had. It's no longer. The conditions are gone. That's why every politician, not just Biden, every politician, one way or another, promises to revive the middle class, which is the working class better paid, the white, male, industrial All of that's gone. Manufacturing is a pale image of what it once was. A tiny percentage of Americans work in manufacturing. We are a service economy, and that hasn't changed. Every one of the last eight presidents promised to revive manufacturing. None of them delivered on that promise, not because they didn't want to or believed in it, but because they can't. The conditions in the world have changed. American manufacturers are now manufacturing in China. They're more interested in the Chinese market than the American because they can make more money there. General Motors sold more cars in China last year than it sold in the United States. It knows where its bread is buttered. The lame politicians ramble on about bringing back a world that is gone, and they make promises they cannot deliver and hope that people who are getting desperate in this country will still vote for them in the hope, yeah, it's a long shot, yeah, he's probably lying to me like all the others, but he sounds like maybe there's a chance. So you vote for Trump for that or you vote for Biden. Neither of them delivered. It's a joke. Manufacturing hasn't come back. The growth in manufacturing jobs in this country is tiny, nowhere near enough to reverse the long historical trend. So the the lame fake talk about the middle class is actually evidence that these two political parties have to talk about the real phenomena, but they have to do it in a way that does not lead the American working class to figure out, honestly, that its conditions are fatally gone 
and they better rise and change the system or else they are going to go be taken down with that system. That's the reality that we face. And demonizing Russia and China, those are cheap words that do not affect what we are doing. And you're going to see the Republicans, Mr. Trump in the lead, beating up on the Democrats about that and getting a good response. Don't waste the money in Ukraine, they're already saying. People need it here, and people here feel that. Whatever their views are on Russia, Ukraine, China, they know that their conditions here are being squeezed. They may not understand why. They may be eager to find a scapegoat, but they know what's happening. As the song says, there's too much month at the end of the money. We're going to have to leave it right there. We've been joined by Professor Richard Wolf. He is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. We bring you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.